you very much. Well, if you would turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is a very familiar passage uh, to most of us, and for good reason. It's one of those passages that um, proclaims the truth of the gospel in uh, a wonderful way. And so we want to look at John chapter 3, verses 9 through 21 today. Um, We've been talking about, uh, essentially this year, preparing for whatever is to come. And we've begun recently to look at what it says in Acts chapter 2 about being devoted to the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching, which means that it's very important that in these days where things are so difficult and so confusing that we hold on to the truth, because that's what the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine refers to is the truth of God that is meant to be held on to no matter what happens. And at the heart of that teaching that we find in the Bible is the love of God. And so we've been looking at um, important passages along those lines. And so we've looked, first of all, the first time we looked at John 17, and we highlighted the fact that the love of God is that which gives us joy in God, that it is the nature of love to want to do good to those that are loved and to bring joy to those we love. And that's certainly the case for uh, God. And that's why Jesus could say, I want you to have my joy and I want your joy to be full because he loves us. And then we looked at 1 John 4 and we highlighted the fact that the love of God is actually the heart of the gospel, the heart of the good news. It's the heart in the sense that it's what drives the gospel. Why is that? Because it's the gospel of God and God is Love. It's the nature of God to love. And therefore, the driver behind the good news is God. And if God is love, then the driver behind the gospel or good news is God who is love. And so today we want to look at another passage that just helps us think through this some more, which is in John chapter 3. And we want to make the point that it's the love of God that actually moves us to trust in Christ that it is the display of the love of God in Jesus through the cross and through the resurrection that is actually that which attracts us to God. And therefore, it's important for us to realize that the proclamation of the love of God in the gospel is very, very important. Now, next week we'll talk about the love of God for his people and how important that is. But today we want to look at the love of God in the very proclamation of the gospel and how important that is in terms of how we communicate that uh, to people. And it's very appropriate in light of the fact that we've had the missions team uh, share today because what is the mission team, team all about? It's about supporting the proclamation of the gospel around the world, here and around the world. And at the heart of the gospel is the love of God. And so I want us to focus on verses 9 through 21 this morning of John chapter 3. And I'll read that for us. Um, It says in verse 9, Now Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is the word of God. The first thing that I want us to think about is in verses 9 through 13 is that um, we tend to have a problem sometimes really understanding God because of two things. One thing is the issue of our own thinking and our propensity to try to logically reason out everything, which isn't a bad thing in itself and definitely has its place. But sometimes it can become a hindrance to us. The other issue is we just don't even uh, see and know all that is actually found in Scripture. And so what's going on here in John chapter 3 is that Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but evidently he was a Pharisee that uh, could see that God was at work through Jesus, that he was uh, performing miracles that nobody else could do uh, unless God was with him. And so he's uh, sort of interviewing Jesus, or at least that's his intent. But uh, the Lord Jesus kind of flips the tables and begins interviewing Nicodemus instead. And so this discussion is going on. And Jesus says, you can't even see nor enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And um, Nicodemus says, how can this be? How can we just, how can someone go back into their mother's womb and be born again? Olive was just born. How is she going to go back and be born again uh, in Becca's womb? Well, that's not going to happen. So uh, Nicodemus is trying to uh, reason through what Jesus is saying when he says, you and no one else can enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And the first hurdle that Nicodemus has to overcome is the hurdle of being able to fully understand it all on his own. That's the issue there that we find when uh, he says in verse 9, how can these things be? Uh, Which is another way of saying, I just don't see how that could happen. I just don't see what you're talking about. I'm not so sure that's really true. Because it doesn't make sense in my own mind. Then the Lord Jesus in verse 10 actually highlights another aspect of what's going on, I think, in the discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus when he says, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? 
Now, what is that highlighting? Evidently, uh, Nicodemus was um, one of the more prominent uh, teachers in Israel. He was well known as a teacher of uh, the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. And the Lord Jesus says, uh, don't you know that your Bible? It's right there in your Bible. Um, you're the teacher of Israel. How, how can it be that you don't know your Bible? Um, there's a story um, in Mark uh, chapter 12, where the Sadducees come to Jesus. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And they come to Jesus and they tell this story. Well, what if uh, this woman gets married and her husband dies and then his brother marries her and he dies and then his brother uh, marries her and he dies and she ends up having seven husbands. You know, which husband is going to be her husband in heaven, in the afterlife? It was a question meant to highlight the fact from their perspective that there can't be an afterlife because you can't resolve that problem. And Jesus, interestingly enough, says, is this not the reason you're mistaken? So he says, think about, let me tell you why you're getting this wrong. Is it not the reason you're mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Nicodemus, you don't understand the scriptures And you don't understand the power of God. That's why you aren't getting what I'm saying. And the reality is all of us are like Nicodemus. We tend to dismiss things because we can't logically reason them out in our own minds. We can't fit things together. And therefore we dismiss that which we cannot fit together through our own reasoning. But we're also in the same situation in that we don't see the Bible like we need to see it. We, maybe we don't even read large swaths of the Bible, much less even understand what they're saying. And so therefore we find ourselves very quick to evaluate what is right or wrong in terms of what we're hearing. And yet we may be readily dismissing things because of our logic or because we don't even know what the Bible says as well as we need to know what the Bible says. And so it's an encouragement to us to be careful of only believing things that we can fully understand. I mean, do you understand electricity? No, but you use it and you're glad that you use it. And so there are plenty of things that we don't have to fully understand, but we believe in and we act on. And the idea that we could fully understand God is just a proud and arrogant uh, kind of position. We have, to guard, we have to guard ourselves against that. And at the same time, we have to seek to uh, give ourselves as much as we can to the word of God that we might understand the word of God. Uh, Don Carson has written a book called uh, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's a little book, but he starts out that book by saying, You know, you may think that that's a funny title for a book. Now, if I were talking on, and this is is a book that came out of some lectures, if I were talking about the difficult, difficult doctrine of predestination or the difficult doctrine of the Trinity, you would readily agree that that's a difficult doctrine. But because we're talking about the difficult doctrine of the love of God, you might think, eh, how difficult can it be? I mean, doesn't everybody understand the love of God? Well, the reality is, uh, no. <laughs> no, everybody doesn't really understand the love of God. And we, we desperately need to carefully read our Bibles when it even comes to the love of God. Because 
truth is like a highway and there's ditches on both sides of the highway. And we tend to get into one ditch or the other. That one ditch is God can only love everyone in the exact same way. The other ditch is God can only love a certain group. He can't love everyone. And so you've got these ditches on either side of the road. And the question is, does the Bible itself support either ditch? It's not whether or not any particular person uh, believes either ditch, but does the Bible support that? And so there are verses in, uh, that uh, stand out to me all the time when I read through the Bible uh, each year. And one of them is like in Deuteronomy 10. It says, uh, of God, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. And that verse, how is love defined? By giving food and clothing. Or um, there's a verse in Hosea, and Hosea is about the love of God for a rebellious people. And he says uh, to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. That's not the love of God for believers. That's the love of God for the rebellious. They're worshiping other gods. Or you have in the New Testament, you have uh, in Matthew 5, where Jesus himself says, I say to you, love your enemies. And then he talks about what that looks like. He says, don't you know that your father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous? For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He goes on to say, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That word perfect could be translated complete or mature, meaning if God sends the Son on the righteous and the unrighteous, and Jesus is talking about love as that being an expression of love, he's arguing you should love your enemies because God loves his enemies. And not just the enemies he's going to, re- going to save and become his friends. He loves his enemies. Jesus says the same thing in Luke chapter 6 when he says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So he's talking about a specific kind of love that does good to those who are not loving us in return. Again, he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. The reality is he's kind to all ungrateful and evil men. And so uh, the first thing we need to see is that uh, the love of God is a complex thing. And it's not as simple as we want to make it sometimes. And we have to guard ourselves uh, just like Nicodemus. The Lord Jesus had to challenge him and say, okay, uh, be careful of letting your thinking keep you from embracing what the Bible actually says in various ways. The second thing is in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus actually uses an illustration from the Old Testament, a story, a true story in the Old Testament that's found in Numbers 21. And he uses it as an Old Testament paradigm of God-loving sinners. And in Numbers 21, it talks about the fact that uh, the, the children of Israel are traveling And they get impatient. And they begin accusing God and Moses 
of not treating them right, uh, not loving them, not doing the right thing. They begin to accuse them of sin. That's the real issue here. Because they say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. I thought you said there was no food. Yeah, there's food, but I don't like this food. What's going on there is you've got a people that are rejecting the love of God. God was loving them. Remember, it says in Exodus that God gives food and clothing out of love. He was loving them, but they were rejecting that, and they were responding to that inappropriately. And the Bible says that God sent snakes or serpents among them, and they began to bite them, and they began to die. And then they said to Moses, okay, we were wrong. Please, please intercede for us and and deliver us from this. And so God tells Moses, as Moses intercedes for them, he, he tells Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And it goes on to say, if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So he said, make this bronze snake and put it on a pole up high. And tell people that if they get bit, to look to the pole. And so what had to happen if someone got bit? They had to trust God. They had to trust what? The provision that God had made. They had, there were two things going on there. A provision and a call to trust in the promise of God based on the provision that was made. Many of us are very familiar with the conversion of Uh, Charles Spurgeon, and how because of a snowstorm, he went to this Methodist chapel, and this guy got up who wasn't a preacher, and he just preached from Isaiah 45, uh, which talks about, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And he says in his testimony that this guy really wasn't a preacher and didn't know what to say, and so he just kept saying the text over and over again. But he did did come to a point where he said things like, my dear friends, this It's a very simple text. Indeed, it says, look. Now, looking don't take a a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your finger or your foot. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and you can look. A child can look. One who is almost an idiot can look. However weak or however poor a man may be, he can look. And if he looks, the promise is that he shall live. And he goes on to say, you know, a lot of you look into yourselves and a lot of you are looking to God, but you need to look to Jesus. And he says, uh, you need to look to Jesus who says, I am in the garden in agony, pouring out my soul unto death. I am on the tree dying for sinners. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. And... Charles Spurgeon was raised in a Christian home. He went to church every Sunday. And he said, for the first time, I heard somebody tell me how to be saved. The first time I heard. Wasn't that that was the first time anybody said. But he said, I finally heard. And it was like no one else had ever told me this. But he basically said, the man said, look, just like the scripture said. And he said, I was so possessed with that one thought, look, like as when the 
The brazen serpent was lifted up. The people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Now, obviously, he he understood that the looking was the look of faith. It wasn't just an intellectual look. It wasn't just a physical look. It was an entrusting yourself to this person. It's, it's like someone is drowning and somebody says, look to the rope I just threw you. What does that mean? Does it mean just look at it with your eyes? Does it mean just know that it's there? No, it means grab onto that rope. That's what it means to look. It, it's, the, it's the look of faith that says, there's my hope. There's my hope for forgiveness. There's my hope for righteousness. There's my hope to be rescued from the wrath of God. There's my hope to be happy forever in God right there. And we grab on to it. And so the Lord Jesus in verses 16 and 17 says that that Old Testament story is a picture of the gospel. Because it starts out in verse 16, as we know, for God so loved the world. Now that word so is taken a couple different ways. Sometimes, by many people, it's taken God loved the world so much that he gave his son. And I think that's true. That the gift uh, is immeasurable. That the very God of heaven would give his own son for rebels who spit in his face every day. But another way that it can be taken is that word so could also be translated God for God in this way, love the world, which I do think is very much connected to what Jesus has said about the story of putting the snake on the pole, just like he told Moses to put the snake on the pole and told people to look. God has loved the world by saying, look at my son. I've put him on a tree. Look at him and be saved. And so we have uh, this very, very famous verse, I think, highlighting both of those things. And many times John in the Gospel of John will have a double meaning for things. And I think both of those things are implied right there. John Calvin, in light of John 3.16, says, in light of this verse, Christ opens up the first cause, meaning the, the thing that actually caused the Son to come and give his life. And as it were the source of our salvation, and he does so, that no doubt may remain. For our minds cannot find calm repose until we arrive at the unmerited love of God. As the whole matter of our salvation must not be sought anywhere else than in Christ, so we must see whence Christ came to us, or or how we receive Christ, and why he was offered to be our Savior. Offered to be our Savior. Both points are distinctly stated to us, namely that faith in Christ brings life to all and that Christ brought life, came to give life because the Heavenly Father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. And so John 3.16 is, is saying something that's an amazing thing, that God loves the world. He doesn't say... And we'll talk about this next week. God loves the elect. God loves those who are actually trusting Christ in a, in a special way that goes beyond what we're talking about here. But the word world is never used in John and never used in the New Testament to talk about the elect. 
It's used in a very broad fashion to talk about evil, unredeemed humanity. And uh, that's why we need to think about it this way, because the Jews thought God only loved the Jews. But no, God loves the world. Now, you always have to define what that means. What are we saying when we say God loves the world? We're not saying that God loves the world like what it says in 1 John when when it says, do not love the world. And in the context, it means do not love what the world is like, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. There's a way in which you should not love the world, and there's a way in which God does not love the world. He does not rejoice in evil. He does not rejoice in uh, wickedness. But he has loved the world in desiring their salvation and in providing a provision. And that's what John chapter 3 tells us. And there's so many ways in which uh, Jesus illustrates this reality. And, And there's a couple different stories about giving dinners or giving feasts. Like for what we find in Luke chapter 14, uh, there's a man who gives a big dinner and he invites many. And he sends out his slaves and he he says, go to these people that have been been invited and tell them, come for everything is ready now. Everything's ready. And what happens in the story? If you read the story in Luke 14, it says they all come up with excuses about why they're not going to come to the feast that's already ready. It's already, already been provided And it says, the head of the household, the man, gets angry. And he says, go out and find people that I didn't invite. Now, there's a lot of this that applies to the Jews versus the Gentiles. That who are the people, the first application of of those who were invited but refused to come? That's the Jewish people. Those that are on the uh, side of the road that haven't been invited initially are a picture of the Gentiles. But the point, or one of the points I want to make from this is, uh, both are invited, but they don't all come. Both are invited to a provision that's already ready, but they don't all come. And so the man says, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Which leads us to... Uh, verses 18 through 21, the last section here. And we need to think about the reality that um, love can be received or love can be spurned. All of us have experienced that, right? We've shown love to someone who hasn't returned it. We've loved someone and we've we fa- we found them rejecting us. And the Bible says that happens as well with regard to the love of God as well. And one of the things that helps us understand what the word world means in this passage is verse 18, where it highlights the fact that uh, some out of the world are going to believe and some aren't. It says in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. So the context makes it clear that the world doesn't apply only to those who receive the invitation and believe but it also applies to those who ultimately reject the invitation. And the question is, why do they do that? In verse 19, it says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. They love the darkness rather than the light. And so they say, no, thank you. I, 
I like the mud pies I'm making here in the slum. I don't want the day at the beach. I, I like what I'm doing. I like my life. I like being in charge. I like pursuing my happiness in this way. I don't want to change. I don't think you, God, have anything to offer me that's any better than what I already have. I'll, I'll stay where I am. There are verses in the Bible that highlight this idea of a real love being spurned. Uh, for instance, in First Chronicles, um, there's a verse that I read recently where uh, God comes and talks about um, Solomon and Saul. And this is what it says, First Chronicles 17, 13. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Speaking of Solomon, but ultimately Christ. It's kind of a double uh, reference there. And then he says, and I, God is speaking, I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. You hear that? With Saul, I loved him and then I took it away. This other person, Solomon, I'm going to love, but I'm not going to take it away. That tells you there's a love that God can show that he can ultimately take away. And then there's a love that he will never take away. That love is what we'll talk about next week. This week I'm talking about a love that can be taken away if we spurn it, if we reject it. Um, in Hosea, obviously, again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it says in 9.15, all their evil is at Gilgal, God is speaking. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Do you have a category for God loves this person at this point, but loves them no more? That's a biblical category. It's a very terrifying category. But the gospel says God is calling you into a faith relationship with him through Christ and so that you can experience a love that will never end, a love that is fully and forever. Don't let God's love for you now somehow keep you from embracing that fully and forever love because the Bible makes it clear that if we spurn the love of God, there are consequences to that. Um, God expresses that love in different ways in the Old Testament. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And yet we know that most of them did die in their sin. And there are consequences to that rejection. We find in Matthew 23 where uh, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are, are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, meaning you've rejected my love and there are consequences to that. You've rejected my love and there are consequences to that. Um, Again, a parallel passage is when it says in Luke 19, when he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. And the last thing is, he says, that he's weeping because judgment is coming. And he says, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What's the visitation? It's Jesus coming and proclaiming the free offer of life and love in himself. There's a uh, passage in Hebrews 10 
where the writer of Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. Then he says, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And as regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. How do you do that? You trample underfoot the gospel. You reject the gospel. And you, re- you trample underfoot the son of God. You reject the spirit of grace. You reject God's overtures of love in that sense and in that way. I mentioned earlier another uh, feasting story. In Matthew 22, where it talks about the kingdom of heaven, the Lord Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And he says, tell those who've been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And again, They pay no attention. They refuse to come. And it says the king is enraged. And he sends his armies to destroy them. And he says, go out and invite others to come. And then at the end of the story, you've got this guy who does come, but he doesn't uh, take the wedding clothes. And the king comes in. He looks around. He says, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? There's no reply. But the response is, um, take this man out and punish him, uh, destroy him, so to speak. The idea is that there is a love of God that invites all men to come and find salvation through Christ. But it is only through Christ. And if we, in some sense, come but refuse to acknowledge our need for a Savior and and refuse to entrust ourselves to Christ so that he cleanses us and he gives us his clothing of perfect righteousness, we won't benefit from that. If we reject the the provision, then the invitation is spurned. Even if we become a part of a church, even if we call ourselves a Christian, if we refuse to, Christ, if we don't put our faith in Christ and Christ alone, then we will not benefit from the provision that's been made and the love that's been extended to us. Now, the question is, how does anybody ever embrace Jesus? How does anybody ever see the snake on a pole and say, I'm going to give my life to that snake on a pole? It's only when you realize that that's the most beautiful beautiful thing you could ever see. Jesus on the cross is an amazing picture of love. The snake on the pole was a picture of love that pointed to Jesus. The greatest picture of all of love is Jesus on the cross, dying for his enemies, dying for rebels, dying for those who spit in his face. And actually, John 3, verses 1 through 8, tells us that nobody entrusts themselves to Jesus Nobody uh, receives the offer of salvation except by God's sovereign work of grace in their lives. That's why it says um, at at the end of uh, that section, verse 8, Jesus uses the picture of the wind. He says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. 
so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In order to see and enter the kingdom of God, in order to be born again, it takes a sovereign work of the Spirit that's like the wind. None of us can control the wind, and we can't control the sovereign work of the Spirit. We can cry out for it, we can ask for it, but we can't control it. And it takes a work of God before anyone will actually entrust themselves to the Lord Jesus. That's why it says in verse 21 that those who uh, come to the light, uh, practice the truth and come to the light so that their deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God or wrought by God. So God gets all the glory for anybody who entrusts themselves to Christ but that doesn't negate the fact that we proclaim the love of God as we proclaim the gospel. And um, it's because, and I'll try to wrap up here in the next few minutes, it's because that it's the love of God that is the big draw. There is a place, and it is the context of the gospel, to proclaim the wrath of God, to cre- proclaim hell, to proclaim the just consequences of love spurned. We need to do that. There is a heaven, there is a hell. There are consequences to rejecting the love of God, to rejecting um, what God offers us. But the thing that draws us to God is the love that's expressed in the gospel. And um, that's been said a number of different ways. Um, there's, there's a book in which Ian Murray talks about the fact that um, he says, If it were not that God is love, his presence would never have become desirable to sinners. The gospel presents love as the attraction. And he quotes a Puritan named John Duncan who said, Love is the great attraction. Without the sternness of holiness and justice, it would be the love of an unholy and unjust God Yet the holiness and justice of God repel the sinner. The reality is we get, we're afraid that maybe if we, in some sense, one way or the other, communicate to people that God has any kind of love for them, that that's going to undermine things. That it's going to undermine the reality that they're under the wrath of God. That it's going to undermine the idea that God is sovereign over salvation. Uh, we're, we're, we become afraid that maybe people will take it the wrong way, that maybe they'll assume that that means that I can live my life whatever way I want to, whether I trust Jesus or not, and I'll be okay. Well, you know what? The Bible tells us that Paul was accused of preaching and teaching that we should do evil that good might come. And he says, you know what? The people that say that, their condemnation is just. But he didn't say, okay, I'll change what I'm preaching. Because people are misunderstanding it. He doesn't say that. Neither should we downplay what the Bible says. Because that means we're downplaying what God says. So we never downplay. We're never ashamed of what God says. But that doesn't mean we might not miss. We might, we might actually misunderstand it. We might take it in the wrong way. Because we all do that. To one degree or another. And that's why it's so important that we do preach a reality of hell, a reality of condemnation, and a need to actually be saved from that. But let us not forget that love is the great, great attraction. Uh, Spurgeon, in his day and time, said that one of the things that 
uh, he saw in the churches in his area was that there were a lot of people that were reformed in their faith, and yet they had a real hard time with the idea that God could in, in any way love all people. And yet he said, you know what? Um, to deny that is to do more harm than you can imagine in the proclamation of the good news because it misrepresents God. And so the issue isn't whether or not I can logically understand it. The issue is what does the Bible say and am I accurately representing the God that I proclaim in the gospel? That may take some work. That may be hard, but it's so important that we do that and we realize how important that it really is. There's so much more we could say about that, and I've got plenty of notes that I could uh, add to that. So if you'd like to read more about this, I'll put this out there for you. But let me just highlight again that um, I'll just close with this. There's a story about William Cooper who wrote uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And um, he said he came to Christ. Part of his coming to Christ was reading John chapter 11, where Jesus heals Lazarus from the dead. And he said it was at that point that he began to see something about Jesus that he had not seen before. And what he said was, he said, I began to see so so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men and our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears upon the relation. The point is, God's work in him and bringing him to Christ began as he saw the love of God in the face of Jesus. And it's the same way with us. Does it include understanding things about judgment and hell and the consequences of sin? Certainly it does. But the love of God moves us to actually trust in Christ. And that's why Paul could say, live your life the way you came to Christ. At least that's part of what he meant. There's a lot that he meant there, but that's at least part of it, is we trust the love of God. And what we proclaim, whether it's here or in Malawi, uh, in our neighborhoods or in Scotland, we proclaim the love of God in the person and, and through the work of Jesus. And the interesting thing is that as we give ourselves to that, we grow in knowing and believing the love of God for us, and we call people to come to the feast because they're invited. And that invitation is not an indifferent indifferent invitation. It's a loving, passionate invitation that can be spurned, but by God's grace, he overcomes that spurning, and he pours out on us a love that is full and forever, and that's what we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you so much for your word. We pray that we would grow in our love for you, in our understanding of you, in our proclamation of the gospel, and that we would see the wonder of your love as it's expressed in the gospel and as it plays itself out in our lives in so many ways. Father, we pray that the reality that you love all men would cause us to have a heart to love all men. Because over and over again, you call us to be like you. And the fact that you do love all men in some ways is a call to us to love them too, to desire their salvation, to pursue their salvation, to do them good, 
to warn them of what is to come if they spurn your kindness and your goodness and your love and to proclaim to them the free offer of salvation in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be more involved in that here and around the world. And we pray that you would also grant that we personally would come to appreciate your love for us in greater, deeper ways as your children and that you'd prepare us as we uh, talk about that glorious aspect of our, our relationship with you next time. Please prepare our hearts now for the Lord's Supper and may you be honored and glorified in and through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.